Did you know that early environmental photographers played a significant role in raising awareness about conservation and environmental issues? Photographers like Ansel Adams, known for his stunning black and white landscapes, used their images to advocate for the preservation of natural spaces. Adams, in particular, was instrumental in the establishment of national parks and the conservation movement in the United States through his impactful photographs of places like Yosemite National Park. The visual power of photography continues to be a force for environmental advocacy, inspiring action, and fostering a deeper connection between people and the natural world. Welcome to The Long Roll. Welcome back to The Long Roll. I'm your host, Griff, and I'm pretty excited to share with you about this week's guest. To me, they're the definition of someone who I look up to as an industry leader and not only what they've spent their time investing into, but also to who they're giving back to. Born in 1981, our guest is a photographer and filmmaker, a silent observer of the climate crisis and the intricate web of social environmental issues that define our existence. Their work has graced the pages of National Geographic, The Guardian, and The Washington Post. Awards like The Portrait of Humanity, The Decade of Change, and Visualizing Climate Change adorn their journey. Behind the lens of interdependent pictures, they've directed films in the most remote corners of the earth. Sponsored by industry giants like Sony and GoPro, earning recognition at over 60 festivals. That is incredible. But who is this week's guest beyond their accolades? An adventure at heart, they've hiked the Appalachian Trail, they've cycled across Europe, they've spent time bundled up in the Arctic, not observing light on how it affects taking one of their many incredible photos, but also but how it impacts the ecosystem around us. Today we unravel the story of this week's guest. From a small town in Appalachia to now where they call home in Syracuse, New York, where they teach as an assistant professor at Syracuse University, shaping the minds of the future generations of visionaries and storytellers. I'm going to go ahead and I'm stop rambling like I usually do, and let's go ahead and introduce this week's guest, Michael Snyder. Awesome, and Michael, welcome to the Long Roll Podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, no, thanks for making time. And again, I know I shared with you beforehand, I dropped the ball on this a couple of times. And so your flexibility means the world to me. And because your story, your story is incredible. Uh, the path that you've taken to get to where you're at today, and you're still doing remarkable things and uh, some pretty remarkable accomplishments that I recently saw uh, this week. And but I want to share with you uh, my first impressions uh, with you and you, your introduction to myself and to my world is when I just took over for social media. I think around the times where I was starting for social media for the EDM's workshop, um, mm -hmm. I know we exchanged I think, some DMs and I highlighted uh, some of your work and the story that you did when you were at the EDM's workshop about Rosie uh, and the farm. And I was just blown away of how incredible the collections of images that you shared and uh, to where they were touching moments, um, the details, everything went together 
uh, incredibly. And I guess why I'm so impressed with it all is because of the short time that you actually get to go out and shoot and cover these things like when you're at the workshop itself. And so I just wanted to share that with you. I don't think uh, I've shared that before. But again, I went back this week to look at the story again, and I still get the same feeling. And uh, the moments, they're quiet, they're beautiful, they're touching. And again, to accomplish that in a short amount of time, uh, is truly a testament to your ability. And so, uh, again, thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for that. Appreciate that. And so first, uh, uh, before I ramble too much, I know I'll, I'll go ahead and jump into the first question that I typically like to ask everyone. And uh, can you share with me and the rest of us your first impressions or your first memories with photography? Yeah, well, um, so I, I, I grew up on 10 acres of woodland in Appalachia. So, you know, as, as a kid, I, I spent most of my time in, in in the outdoors and we had three channels on the television. I think that expanded to about 11 channels uh, by the 90s, you know, so there, there just wasn't much happening in, in the indoors at, at all. And we also there was four kids in the household. So I think my parents were uh, yeah, get out. <laughs> get you know, to throw us outside and 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 get us outdoors. So, you know, most of my formative experiences and, and early memories about are about be, being outside, really. But we did had one uh, fancy piece of sacred gadgetry in the house, um, and that was my dad's camera. Uh, he, he'd actually worked as a photographer in, in the 60s uh, and 70s, did some social justice work, um, other little bits of uh, documentary work. And eventually I was born and uh, he, he had the uh, sense to move on to another career at that time. But but we, we grew up around cameras, you know, and grew up around image making. And of course, we had... National Geographic magazines and Time magazines around the house. So, you know, it was something that was always there, you know, and I and I uh, was was excited about it. It was something that was special that my dad and I did together. But I, I you know, I never imagined mm-hmm. that it would be something I would I would do as a career. Um, when my when my grandfather died, I think this is in the late mid to late 90s, I inherited his camera. Oh wow! Uh, and, and and that that became sort of my sacred piece of equipment. It was always with me, um, and I started shooting weddings uh, actually in the in the '90s with that, and um, and was uh, somewhat horrified by the <laughs> I would be, yeah. trying to shoot mm-hmm. weddings on 35 millimeter um, yeah. format, you know. But um, but yeah, it was always it was always a part of my life. Um, and yeah, it's it's only kind of you know I had a I had a period in my life where I moved away from it, and then almost 25 years later I came back to it but um but yeah it was a, it was it was always there in the background even as a kid so that's interesting to me because I know I think as photographers we all have our special connection to weddings and uh it's all horrifying in different ways but it's also beautiful because we're capturing uh these very sacred moments and the communion communion against uh with with two individuals and um uh, but it's also very stressful and but when I did it it was all digital I couldn't imagine uh shooting it on film and I guess I, I, I'm curious to where how you even started uh, seeking those opportunities and, and doing those. Yeah, so weddings have been a part of my photographic life longer than anything else. And, you know, for me, they're honestly a really special part of of, of my career. I, I often say, like, even if you let's say you just make the most fantastic image, you tell the best story, you make the cover of some incredible magazine, you know, that that image has an enormous power to reach, you know, potentially all around the world. And it might be the most talked about thing for a, a day or a week, but in not too much time, 
that quickly goes away and it's replaced by the next thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have incredible breadth with that kind of work, but oftentimes not a whole lot of depth unless you you know just make one of these iconic images that that last forever. And weddings are kind of the inverse of that, right? You're never mm-hmm. going to get that. It's only going to be 50 people that ever look at it. But yeah. to those 50 people, these images that you've made might last 10, 20, 50, 100 years. Somebody might look at one of these photos and say, oh my gosh, look, that's grandma. She's beautiful. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so, you know, it's this enormous privilege, I think, to get to do wedding work um, because you're, you're you're really giving an image that, you know, that that really matters to somebody and, and being entrusted with a really intimate part of the story. So I, I've always been very open about that being part of my photographic past. I know some documentary photographers, photojournalists get kind of embarrassed maybe about that being part mm-hmm. of their work. I, I, I've never really known why, but for me, it's sort of a really sacred thing um, that I've done. And also I would say a lot of the skills that I have um, as a documentary photographer, I, I learned through weddings. I mean, holding the space, being present, you know, um, waiting for timing. I mean, everything from the day from portraiture work to doc work um, to creative work, it's, it's, it's all bound up in, um, in, in weddings. And of course, needing to produce now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> make sure you get it now. You're in control of the situation so that you can make the images regardless of what's coming up. So um, it's been a big part of my life. I've, I've retired from weddings, I think, <laughs> on three occasions. I just recently retired again this summer. I think this one will stick. Um, but for, yeah, almost 25 years, I, I, I did that. No, I love that. I love the connection to that. And I know I've shared this a couple times on the podcast, uh, but for those who haven't heard it yet, um, I really love your you sharing to where it's tied to a family's legacy. And as they try to connect with great, great grandma from years ago that they never really would have, they wouldn't have the opportunity to really get to know them. These pictures are essentially how they get to do that. And a lot of where I started feeling that what my job was at had, it was very important, and I felt the weight of the responsibility of uh, performing better as an Air Force photographer when I went out to go capture people doing the mission is understanding I had a great supervisor who shared with me that these pictures are going to be what the great-great-great-grandchildren connect to their great-great-great-grandmother or grandfather and while they were serving, and this is what they're going to have as possibly their only way to connect and get to know them. And uh, it's so it's integral to where uh, we do the best we can, especially if they reach out to us and and want the photos. And we'll never know. We'll never know. Um, they'll never, you know, have the opportunity to thank us. And it's not about that. But putting it into that context, uh, it definitely shifted my mindset for the amount of energy and effort. I would sometimes uh, go out and, and do these jobs with my boss is like, hey, be busy. Don't be sitting at your desk. Uh, go get the job done. And uh, and so and I was just young. But again, I felt like that really accelerated my maturity uh, and this responsibility we have of, of telling stories and, and sharing uh, the impacts people are making in my in my terms in the Air Force culture and life. I'm curious uh, to what you stepped away to do uh, and then what eventually led you back to the path to picking up uh, your camera again. You know, as as I mentioned, I grew up in Appalachia, and you know, it's a place that's an inc- incredibly beautiful. Um, and the land that I grew up on was, was was very beautiful, but it's also a place that, by and large, has been disfigured. You know, by a hundred hundred and fifty years, really, of industrial extraction. And the area that I grew up is no exception. And that's that's coal and and timber principally. And those those scars show up on both the ecology of the region. Um, but also on the economies and on the population, right? And so at, at a young age, I think seeing that, I became 
very passionate about environmental issues. I had a wonderful teacher um, when I was in high school there that really got me inspired. And, and that's what I went on to study um, at both the undergraduate and then at the graduate level. Uh, I got a scholarship from the uh, Rotary Club in, in Frostburg, Maryland oh, to nice. study at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Um, and it was during that my grad program there that I came to two realizations that that really speak to what I do now and the way in which I do it now. So the the first is I think if you spend time with the data, right? If you actually uh, take the time to read through the literature, it, it's very difficult to come to any other conclusion that climate change is happening. Uh, it's a it's a big deal. It might mm -hmm. be the single um, greatest challenge of our generation and we've only got a small amount of time to get it right, right? So I, I think it's hard to come to any other conclusion that no matter what it is that you care about in society, Climate change stands to make it much more difficult to tackle that issue, right? So it's just a huge challenge. And the second conclusion I came to, and this is the one I think that really informs the way in which I work, mm -hmm. is that despite what we know, right, we've got 50 years of solid science around climate change. Despite what we know, we really, we, we've just not moved the needle on this, right? We're not doing enough with the science. And so we've got to get much better at shifting both individual attitudes, but also public action towards combating environmental issues. Anyway, it, it turns out when you when you when you look at the options we have to turn those knobs to get people inspired to actually drive change, the science alone isn't enough, right? That's that tends yeah. people either don't pay attention to the data, they mm -hmm. don't read the data, they don't look at it, or yeah. it's just not enough. We're, it, we're, we're much more complicated animals than that. So in my research that I was doing as a grad student, the thing that I landed on is that visual storytelling has this enormous potential to be able to really communicate science uh, and also hopefully move people internally like really move their move them emotionally so they yeah. care about these issues and they ultimately do something with it so uh you know 10 years ago no longer than that now i guess it was almost 13 years ago 14 um you know i was working on a on a consulting firm that was using visual storytelling to be able to help drive change around environmental programs in the uk i moved back to the us uh, end up starting a, a a production company that was um, working with nonprofit organizations and helping to sort of visually show the work that they were doing. And as time moved on, I found more and more that what I was really passionate about was the documentary process. So kind of slowly bit by bit, you know, this career kind of came back to me. I feel like I was, it was something that was always there and always a part of me and I was passionate about it, but, you know, I never knew for sure it was, it was going to happen. And then one day I woke up as like, Wait a minute! I'm back. <laughs> I'm back. I'm I'm back to being a kid again, playing with cameras, you know. And but but now with a with a reason to do it. Now with a purpose. Mm -hmm. Now with a why that that under uh, underlays my um my how. You know the the the, the camera is really the piece of equipment that I'm using to hopefully drive better conversations and better understanding and better actions around these issues. But the real why that that undergirds that is hopefully contributing to a world that's more sustainable and, and you know, more just and more equitable. We, we never know uh, if that's the ends of our work or not, but, but that's where I'm aiming. That's where I hope um, my work points. So uh, for your time and that you've committed to this, have you seen personally a shift, uh, maybe not in such a global way, but maybe in a smaller scale, or maybe both, if you could share, have you, have you seen a shift from the times that you've committed uh, your abilities and your skills to communicate these things to the rest of the world and, and to the communities around you? Well, I'd say it's 
it's hard to know if anything I've done has had any impact or not. You know, I don't, I think as visual storytellers, we're not often afforded that, that, that perspective as educators, we're not often afforded that perspective. You know, we put out our work, we put out what we have to teach, and then you have to let it go because you just don't know if it'll ever contribute in any meaningful way to the big picture. Um, so I, I don't know if my work has done that or not, but I, but I do, I do know from the research that attitudes are changing. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the percentage of people that knew what climate change was or thought that it was an issue or thought that it was man-made or thought that we could do something about it, the, those figures were all low and have steadily grown um, in the in the time sense. And we're at the place now in this country, in the US, um, but also in other Western nations around the world where the majority of people understand that this is a pressing issue, uh, that it's happening, that it's principally caused by human activity and that we have some solutions. And I think one of the things that's that's a good thing is that ultimately the conversation has moved away from just what can I do as an individual? And we should be doing things like turning off our light bulbs and recycling. These are fine things, but they're never really going to get us there, right? Mm-hmm. Until we change the rules of the game, until we 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 make it so that polluting is expensive to do, that or polluting uh, that carbon pollution is not something we even can do anymore. We keep the fossil fuels in the ground. Until we demand more political action, we'll probably never get there. But we're we're seeing that happening. I work with young people all the time, and I'm really inspired by them. I think I think they're I hope, and I think that they're the generation that will get this work done. Something that's remarkable to me that what when I look at uh, for the next generation, the younger generation that we're developing today as a as a society, especially when it comes to my two children, uh, twelve and fifteen years old, as I feel like they're a lot more in tune with everything when it comes to what culture, uh, the environment, everything that. Um, everything at a lot higher capacity than I was at their age. And they just seem well beyond their years. Uh, And so could you compare, especially in the scene that you said now is like growing the future generation of storytellers. Do you feel the same way uh, in comparison to where maybe even you, where you were as a kid and the friends that you had around you? Yeah, for sure. So, um, so I'm at the university of Syracuse in New York. Now I teach at the Newhouse school of public communications uh, and I teach in the visual storytelling department. So principally I'm working with students that are doing uh, documentary storytelling, uh, both photographically and filmmaking. And, you know, these, they, these students are really savvy. You know, they're, uh, they're, they're great with the cameras. You know, that's really not a barrier. One of the things that's so, so wonderful about the age that we live in is that, you know, you can go online and you can Google this stuff and you can learn pretty quickly what would have taken years to learn before you have to travel to an institution on the other side of the country. Now you can type into the computer and you can learn camera techniques. So I, I find that they come here with those skills intact. You know, that's something that, that that's a starting point as we have very high mm-hmm. level of, of photographic skills. And then really what we're trying to do is figure out, okay, how can we take that mastery of visual storytelling and put it to work to tell a powerful story that actually does work in society, right? And I hear a lot from my students that, look, I'm I'm excited to make a beautiful image. That's that's great, but you know, I I, I want to be more than just being in the entertainment industry here, right? I want to yeah. know that that this is doing something, that this is meaningful somehow, that I'm contributing. And I would say, by and large, many of my students feel that way, which which is really exciting. So one of the things that we often talk about in in class is that if you're going to work on social or environmental issues, right, and you you want to make a story that makes a difference, you've got to do a few things. The, the first one is um, that it's not enough to just tell a story that shows what the impacts are, 
You know, you got to go beyond that. You've got to say, okay, here's what the problem is, but here's where it comes from and why, right? You've got to be journalistic about these things. We've got to dive deeper. We've got to understand the systems that give rise to these issues in the first place, right? But even more importantly, we've got to, we don't want to just tell those kinds of stories and leave the audience with that story of gloom and doom and impact. Because what we know is if, if that's what the audience sees and that's all they see, and yeah. this is particularly true with climate change storytelling, they're not likely to get excited and inspired to do anything. What they're more likely to do is say, whoa, that looks awful and there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, so I'm we're screwed. Go, yeah, we're screwed. So I'm going to go back to watching baseball or whatever it is I'm mm -hmm. doing. I'm not going to engage, right? So if we want to tell stories that make a difference, we've really got to pivot off of just the gloom and doom and move into solutions focused storytelling, right? Mm. Find a character that's doing something that's inspiring, that has some sort of a solution, even if it's on a local level, right? Even if it's just yeah. about their community. It doesn't have to be to save the, the world or stop climate change at large. It might be, how do I preserve this, this place that I love? Or how do I hold on to this cultural identity, right? But moving into solutions focused uh, storytelling and doing in that a way, in a way that holds a hopeful vision for the future, right? We, we know that hope ultimately is more inspiring than fear is. And then and, and then finally, you know, how do we take those stories and if we're going to get them to do work, you know, if we're going to mm. get them to make a difference in society, as storytellers, it, it would be presumptive uh, to think that we can just make this stuff and it goes out and does the work on its own. The reality is, is we've got to do much better about of, uh, with building collaborations with the outside world, right? So we can publish our work, but then how do we take it one step forward? How do we partner with nonprofit organizations that are doing this work? How do we partner yeah. with policymakers that might look at the work and write a new piece of policy about it? How do we partner with business leaders, you know, that, that, that they might get inspired by that work? And it's those relationships, those collaborations, those partnerships that really drive change, right? It's, it's a fallacy to think as storytellers, we can do it on our own. The, mm -hmm. the story, the photo might be a foot in the door to start that conversation, right? right? Yeah. But, but we can play an active role in making sure that conversation happens. And so we spend a lot of time in classes looking at how we can do that, um, how we can be a part of that conversation. Something that's really interested me with your path and what you've traveled is essentially is your travels. Again, you've been all over the world. You've been in the hottest of hots. You've been in... Uh, the colds of the colds, and I'm just intrigued. And for me, I sit there thinking as, again, a military photographer, how does one find themselves in the situations you end up stepping into? Yeah, it's um, it's been an incredible adventure. You know, I think I'm incredibly privileged to have been to some of the places that I've been to. Uh, and a lot of the stories that I, that I work on are in very close partnership with either um, scientists and, and researchers that are, that are doing really inspiring work or with community leaders. And a lot of those relationships come from my background. Again, my personal mm -hmm. connection to this is um, as a researcher myself, as a scientist myself, as a climate scientist, and then as somebody that was involved in, in the nonprofit and the advocacy world. So a lot of those old relationships lead to the stories that I work on today. And I, I guess just a, I'll just highlight two here for you and kind of some of the more climatic extremes of the planet. Um, a number of years ago, I partnered with a team of researchers based out of Norway that were doing research during the polar night. So that's the that's the time of year in the Arctic where the, the sun doesn't rise above the yeah. horizon. That's, mm -hmm. that's the the definition of what it means to be Arctic, right? Either for just a few days or for a full six months, the sun doesn't rise. But this is an incredibly difficult environment to be working in. Uh, of course, the Arctic in general is, is difficult during the summer months, but during the winter months, it's extremely harsh. Uh, but they had this really fascinating 
thesis, and it's it's essentially this, we know as climate change is happening and the Arctic ice sheet is shrinking, um, that what's happening is we're getting less light coming into the, in sorry, uh, we're getting more light, excuse me, coming into the into the ocean because as the polar cap is removed, even during the winter months, there's a tiny bit of light that's bouncing off the upper atmosphere. It's oh, wow. getting into the water. So during the summer months, that's somewhat obvious, but during the winter months, um, there's just a little bit of light. So it could be light from um, the northern lights. It could be light, like I said, that bounces off the upper atmosphere, light that bounces mm -hmm. off the moon. It's about a millionth of what we can see underwater. But yeah. to the organisms there, it has an enormous impact because these organisms are so finely tuned to these tiny little bits of light. Mm -hmm. So their, their, their theory was essentially that, um, you know, the shrinking ice sheets lead to more light, which could lead to a, a radical restructuring of, of the ecosystem there. So anyway, I got to go up um, and spend um, almost a month uh, in the high Arctic, we were trying to get as far north as we possibly yeah. could in our months to take these samples and see how much light was in the water and what impact was having. I think at one point in time, we were the northernmost people on, on the planet. Um, we were about 80 degrees north latitude when we were That's doing That's incredible. It was wild. It's, I mean, it's the closest thing that I'll ever do to a moonwalk. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. just in, like another, another world. Um, and, and, you know, they, they largely found that their hypothesis was, was true. They ended up publishing a, um, a piece in, in nature and we did a photographic piece that was a feature in National Geographic. Um, and so it's, it's just an enormous privilege to get to work with, uh, you know, just deeply curious, very creative folk like that and to help yeah. elevate the work that, that 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 they're doing um so that was a number of years ago that that was the first feature that i did for for nat geo and then just this past summer uh to give you an, an example on the on the other extreme working at the mid latitudes i was in uh jordan just this past summer um working on a project that's funded through the national geographic society uh and it's looking at how um world heritage sites can adapt to climate change right mm -hmm. We know climate change is this big global phenomenon, but the way that it manifests site to site is completely different, right? It, the the story of of what happens um, on a on a microcosmic scale can be totally different from place to place. Yeah. So you need to take these big models and downscale them, and it turns out that in Jordan at uh, Petra World Heritage Site, which is the famous yeah, I've been to Petra. Yeah, yeah. From from Indiana Jones. Yeah, you've yeah, uh, mm -hmm, you've seen it yeah. before. Um, so what, what's interesting, this is in the desert, but actually the impact that they're experiencing the most is from flash flooding, right? You'll get these sudden bursts of yep. rainfall that'll flash down through these canyons, and they're obviously very dangerous for the folks that are that are there. Um, and this is a place that generates uh, quite a bit of tourist um, capital for the country, but also it's damaging the site. Um, so what's 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 fascinating is what they're finding is the more archaeological work that they do, they find that the folks that built these sites thousands of years ago, well, they they knew about flash flooding and they had designed all of these systems in the rock to be able to channel and manage this water. Which is wild. Which is wild. And so the, the more they look, the more they, they realize that indigenous knowledge in this place is one that's very well adapted to these extremes of climate, right? And so the question becomes then, how do we recapture that knowledge how do we rebuild these ancient systems that exist not mm -hmm. only in places like petra but all around the planet that indigenous people knew about H how do we do that and then pair that with the yeah. best technology that we have today with you know things from satellite imaging to um you know computer monitoring and in, in real time of flash floods like how do we pair the best of both worlds to come mm -hmm. to a climate solution that may preserve these places so really excited about that project shot it this summer and hopefully it'll be coming out sometimes uh, sometime in the in the coming months. 
Those are both incredible stories. And I love I'm able to connect with you uh, for both of those. So when I lived, my first duty station was Alaska. Uh, and so I was able to actually at one point in time travel up to the North Pole, the actual North Pole. It was like, I think, a four and a five hour drive from where I was living at the time for you to be invested into seeing what that does and how um, that affects the ecosystem or just around there, which could, which will affect those of us in the rest of the world is remarkable. And it's having those questions and seeking those answers. Uh, and like you said, it's now it's all we could find eventually online uh, or published in the magazine National Geographic to where we get to learn from that. And two, for the Jordan, uh, just you sharing that story, being there and being at Petra, again, it brings up a, a lot of nostalgia for myself as well, because I was able to uh, go there a little bit earlier in my Air Force career um, and to where there was a, there's three different uh Air Force or Air Base uh, components within Jordan, and I think Ankara, Enserlik, and Izmir, and uh, and yeah, just being able to reflect on some of those now and some of those memories, and then is seeing Petra and seeing again, like it's what they did and what's still standing today is truly remarkable. And for you to take a closer look at that and how it's been able to do that, and how again we can we can. Uh, implement that into today's technology and society like you've shared uh, is it's remarkable. And uh, I'm definitely going to be paying attention and keep my ear to the ground uh, for when that comes out. But that's really cool. Something that if you can share with me is your experience when the university, and again, correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but is it uh, Endenburg? uh recognized Edinburgh. you yeah, yeah recognized you and named you as uh one of the most influential alumni for making a significant contribution to climate uh science and justice and so if you can share what if you can walk me through what the day was like when you got notified that they were going to recognize you in this way for the time that you invested what an incredible honor for sure right i it was something i didn't i didn't expect at all you know, um, I, I opened up my inbox that day and, you know, what, you know, you, you sort of scroll down through things and trying to scan because you get way more emails than you can possibly read in a day. And only only a small percentage are ones that actually are, are relevant and are, are not spam. And I remember coming across this email and it, it certainly looked like it was spam. And I opened it up and I, yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> you know. Like I'm a prince. If you send me a thousand dollars, I'll send you half a million. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. You are mm -hmm. one of the most yeah impactful alumni at the university. So I didn't, I didn't expect it at all. And it, it is certainly an incredible honor. And, but, you know, for, for me, um, you know, it's, it's just not the most important thing. I think, I think mm -hmm. if those, if those honors and those badges we get to wear, if they open up more more doors for us so that we can do more meaningful work, if they can get us into the next space so we can move on our career and hopefully do more good than, than they're worthwhile. But be, beyond that, I think for me, you know, that's not really the metric that I think that I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, it, it's hard, it's hard to, to measure the things that matter the most to me, but I think really what it comes down to, what I oftentimes say in, in the classes that I teach is, the work of visual storytelling, the work of documentary practice, it's really not about the awards that we get. It's really not about how fancy our lenses we have or even our ability to use them. It's really about relationships. You know, it's yeah. it's it's really about our relationship that starts with our, ourselves, understanding what, what it is that we care about and, and why and what stories we want to bring alive in this world. What are the things that we want to share? Why that matters to us? 
um, you know, does our knowledge and our experience actually um, contribute to that in some sort of way? It's about relationships with the people and the places that we work with. You know, I, I oftentimes say that that's both the practice and the product, right? Mm -hmm. It's the way to do meaningful, impactful work that, that, shows highly vulnerable um, stories that are of, of characters that are trying to make a difference in this world. Well, that's built on relationships. That's built on access and, and that's built on trust. But also the, the, in the process of doing the work, hopefully you've deepened their relationship, the characters that we work with, their relationship with their subject matter. They've thought about it in a new way. Or maybe you've connected them to, you know, outlets to be able to magnify their story. Or maybe there's a nonprofit that can help come in and drive impact around that work. But Along the way, as storytellers, we have this pot this potential to help build these ecosystems, essentially, yeah, right? And yeah. for me, even though those threads, those relationships are are difficult to measure, they're difficult to see, they're invisible. You know, I think that's the real currency that we have. Um, you know, as, as as storytellers, but also just as people, I think that's what really matters at at, at the end of the day is is those relationships and that trust, and hopefully that does good work in the world. We don't get to know, All right. <laughs> but, right. part, yeah. but but hopefully it does. So so again, to come back to the top of your question, I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's an incredible honor and I'm, I'm so grateful for that and the other yeah. things that have been said about my work over time. Um, and hopefully it allows me um, to, to do more work about the stories that I really care about. No, I, and I love that response. And that's been uh, a response that's been echoed uh, with a lot of people that have share their time on the podcast that have remarkable accomplishments like yourself is um, it's not, you know, the, the, the recognition and the accomplishments of those prizes or awards or those things aren't necessarily the driving force. Um, but if it provides the opportunity to do more of it uh, and to build more connections and to network more and to give a platform to voices and things that need those things that don't traditionally get it on a large scale, that's, you know, that's one way to look at it as a positive. And that's very mature. And again, I think that's super incredible, especially for the seat you're sitting now at Syracuse and, and growing and influencing, inspiring young professionals to where um, yeah, winning an award and being recognized at, at the largest grand scale is great. But, you know, keep your keep your true north aligned and, you know, don't get distracted uh, by the glitz and glamour. Because it, again, it's something that when I was earlier in my career, and that was my motivations being in the military, is we have a contest that was called Milfog. It was essentially was like our Pulitzer for the Department of Defense. And earlier on in my career, I utilized a lot of my motivation to go and shoot was to compete against my peers, to really compete uh, in this contest to uh, be essentially in the conversation at the end of the day, every time uh, the contest was held annually. But as time went on, as I got more mature, as I had more incredible mentors in my life, um, I really shifted my mindset to, uh, again, uh, something that was more rational and mature and to focusing on things that I care about. And like you said, networking and building bonds with people uh, truly is what's going to fill my cup and make me feel complete and not just a plaque that's on the wall that now is sitting in a closet. Like you've had the opportunities to speak at some pretty prestigious universities. Uh, and now you, you end up landing your feet for the time being at Syracuse university. Uh, how do you end up uh, in the situation or position that you're in now? Cause I find again, your path is scientist and weddings and it's a little bit of everything. And then it's, the contributions are incredible and now 
you're at Syracuse. Can you just break down how we get here? You know, I, I started out telling you in the early um, part of our talk here about my dad being a photographer and, you know, being inspired by him and his work. Well, my, my mom was an educator. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in life, we sort of, you set out down your own path and you think you're doing your own thing and you're, you know, you're, you're really expressing yourself and pushing away from, you know, the, uh, the family traditions. And, and lo and behold, here I am back where I started as an educator working with cameras. So I've got a, up on my wall here um, at the university, I've got a, a photo of my mom and photo of my dad to remind myself and where I've come from and, and probably why I do what I do. But but yeah, mom was an educator. Um, she was a college professor, real, real inspiration for me in terms of the power of education, um, r- really as a tool for social change as much as anything else. And and, and to, to be honest, for, for me, you know, I see all of my work as education anyway. You know, mm-hmm. I'm getting after it in a, a different way, perhaps by w- the work I've done as an independent photojournalist, as a filmmaker, but, but it's really to you know, to, to teach and to hopefully inspire transformational change and lead people towards lives that are more fulfilling and more empowered and sustainable and so forth. So, you know, it, it has felt like a natural transition. And, and my first yeah. job out of college was, was teaching too. But, okay. you know, after f- almost 15 years of being independent, um, you know, I, it, 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 it was hard to walk away from, from that path. And mm-hmm. I had always said, I said to my wife, if I was ever going to do that if I was ever going to transition into academia or transition into a, a full-time teaching job somewhere it had to be for the right the right school the right job and the right place yeah. and I, I just felt incredibly lucky that this position came up here at Syracuse and at at Newhouse you know in, in part because of the status of this school I mean it's just mm-hmm. it's just wonderful to work at a university where you have such motivated talented students they are way beyond the maturity level, so the skill level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> way, way beyond where I was whenever I was an undergrad um that's an incredible privilege um it, it's amazing to be at a, a school that is really focused on building practitioners you know yeah. I think the thought space behind what we do is is really important but but there's a real focus here on getting people out to to really do meaningful work and to ask ourselves this question what is meaningful work you know again but back to what you're talking about sort of awards and, and, and attributes, you know, look, we can, you can make the best work in the world, but if, if, mm-hmm. if you don't get it, if you don't get it out there, if you don't get it seen, and uh, and sometimes if you don't get the awards for it, if you don't push for those sort of things, you, you just don't have the reach, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. even though these things are not the end point, you know, it's not about the awards, it's not about in what magazine that you publish, they are serious waypointers in our, in our career. And they are, I guess secondary markers of hopeful this hopeful impact that you have. So yeah, Syracuse um, is just an industry leader um, in in that space and is a, a very thoughtful space about making work um, that makes a difference and, and and telling stories that matter and and really building building leaders that do that work. So it's it's great to be here. It's felt like a really natural fit for me. I started mm-hmm. this this past fall, but honestly, it feels like I've been here for a long time. It feels yeah. like home. So, um, yeah, it's exciting to be to be back in the classroom full time. And hopefully I'll still have enough time uh, to get out in the summer months and and continue to do my own field work. Like what has it been like from the first day stepping in and uh, like your first class um, to the class that you have now? I, I mean, I was at, we're obviously a week out from Christmas. Um, so what is that? What has that been like? Yeah, it's exciting. You know, it's um, I think it's an exciting thing in your work where you're doing something where you feel like, you know what, this is a this is a good application of my abilities and my interests, 
what I'm passionate about. It's because after my why, you know, this speaks directly to the kind of work I want to be doing. And and I can do this. You know, I believe I can do this. I believe I can do this well. Um, but at the same time, you you look up and you see how much space you have to grow into professionally. And I think that this is a really exciting time for me because, you know, one one semester in, um, I'm so excited for how I can improve everything that I'm doing, right? I'm 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 surrounded by a number of professors here that are just utterly excellent at what they do. Right. Yeah. And are are real inspiration. So yeah, it feels like I'm I'm in the water, I'm swimming, I'm doing well, I got this, but there's a long pool in front of me. <laughs> and, and and for me, there's nothing more inspiring than that. You know, I tend to uh atrophy pretty quickly when there isn't a challenge in front of me. Um, yeah. and this feels feels like a really exciting challenge, but but one that is um is a good fit for 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 what I want. So yeah, I'm excited to uh, to see what comes next. That you know, you come back in ten years and ask me that question and see how it's right. going. Um, right now, it's all it's all excitement. Yeah, feels good. That's beautiful. And uh, so for you, I know I've had you here for a while, and but I always have two final questions I like to ask everyone. Um, and the first one, it's about the Eddie Adams workshop. And as I sit in the seat that I am now. And I compare the work I did, and maybe I'll share this with you. I think I have it on Flickr somewhere. The, the shots that I took as a student when I went through the workshop back in 2010, um, it's nowhere as touching and thoughtful as what you captured. And, and sitting in the seat, uh, doing social media and communicating on behalf of the workshop and showcasing the legacy and the accomplishments of um, those associated with the workshop as either professionals or those that have that are now alumni uh, of the community. Uh, it, it's a big deal. Um, and again, your work uh, is remarkable. But can you share me what the workshop has meant for you? Or if there's like a special moment from the workshop itself that that sticks out in your mind still today? Yeah, Um in the photojournalism space and in the documentary storytelling space, it's a, it's an area with a tremendous amount of pressure, you know, to tell stories in, in real time. It, the reality is a lot of competition, you know, it's an industry with a lot of people that want to be in that space, but there's only, only so many spaces there. Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of a hardcore space. And I think it can feel really, in, really intimidating. And I think for, for me, you know, the Eddie Adams workshop, probably the most important thing I, I took away is, yeah, okay, that's true. You know, that's true. Uh, and you got to work hard and you got to be lucky, you know, and you got to be good at what you do. Um, and it is hardcore, but there's also an enormous amount of goodwill in this mm -hmm. space, you know, and to a person, 99% of the people that I've worked with, whether they're photographers or their editors or their filmmakers or whatever space that they're in, they get genuinely excited to see you grow and succeed, you know? Yeah. They want to do what they can to be able to support that. And I think Eddie Adams is just one of these just excellent examples. of right. this. It's, you know, it's just an incredibly special space. I'm filled with people that all care about this, that all love this and really love to see the other people around them succeed, you know. Um, and so to, to me, that's wonderful. I, I bring that ethos into, into my teaching um, here at the school. And I and I say to my students, like, you know, honestly, you're, you're learning from me. Hopefully you learn something from me. But like look all around you in this room because the people that are that are around you i mean these aren't your competitors these are your collaborators these are your co-conspirators these are the people yeah. that are gonna they're gonna pull you up right it's it, it's it's true we've got to push ourselves and sometimes there's only enough space for one, one person to get this piece or you know to get this award 
but really the truth is in the in the long in the long form of your career i think your ability to su su succeed is your ability to connect and to pull other people around you up with you mm -hmm. um so i think eddie adams is just um just a wonderful space that 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 really echoes that and has really inspired me and then secondarily yeah i i, I mean i think probably the thing that i that i benefited from the most is just uh be, beyond that is just folks being willing to pull back the curtain and yeah you know uh, because a lot of times the photographic world, we see these amazing images and these amazing stories and we're overwhelmed and inspired, but we never hear the stories about how they were made or you never really hear the stories about how they got in the position to do that in the first place. Like, what was the secret? How did you build these connections? How did you build this these relationships? How did you get here? Like, you know, what did you have to do to make enough money on the side? What was your side hustle? You know, and um, yeah, yeah. You know, like I was telling you earlier with, with, with me, with, with weddings, you know, a lot of us have a side hustle because it's so hard to be able to, to really make it. So what did you do in the meanwhile? You know, and I, um, I, I was really inspired and, and, and wowed by a number of the folks that I connected with there that were willing to share those stories and really, um, really willing to be honest about what it took, uh, to be able to make it. So it, it was a life-changing experience. I tell all my students to apply. Um, yeah, it's just a really cool thing to be a part of. Yeah. So I'm curious is what got to the point to where you even wanted to apply yourself? What did that look like? uh as your motivation to putting in a package in a portfolio yeah well quick backstory on that as i said i'm a i'm a climate scientist by training right mm -hmm. so yeah I, I i didn't go to school for this and so i had to be self-taught i had to really scrabble over years to figure to figure it out and i i, I kind of got to the point maybe five or so years into my career and i was like you know i just it's like, I wish I had these teachers and mentors that some of the other folks had. So mm -hmm. what, what I figured out I could do instead, instead of being able to, uh, you know, be in school to learn directly from folks is I could, I, I chose, I think a hundred different photographers that inspired me. And I went to their websites and I went to their about pages and I just looked and said, okay, what have they done? You know, yeah. wh who have they worked with? Mm -hmm. You know, where, what workshops have they done? What awards have they got? What grants do they go for? Where yeah. do they speak? And I just like, scrolled through all that stuff and grabbed it and put it in, into a spreadsheet and started applying to these things. But, you know, a very consistent, <laughs> a consistent marker among the people mm -hmm. that it, I, I wanted to do work that was similar to was they had been at the Eddie Adams workshop. And so that, I, I think that's, that's quite literally how I found out about it. I saw it on a number of um, folks' websites. And the more I read about it, the more I said, man, this is something that I really, really want to do. I, it took me a few years to get to this space where I felt like I was good enough and ready to apply. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I took my time and applied when I was ready and yeah, I was just really overwhelmed and honored that I, that I got in and got to be part of that cohort. No, it's, yeah, it's incredible. And it's like you just shared as you're looking through all of these individuals, careers and bios and ways that they help navigate the success for themselves. There's a lot of other workshops out there. And I know uh, we specifically speak about the EDIAMS workshop here, but, and, and I know it's hard. It's extremely hard to get into the EDIAMS workshop and it's almost a uh, rite of passage, which I've joked about in the past to get rejected. One, two, three, even Cesar Rodriguez, which to me, one of the best living photographers on the planet, definitely one, number one for sure for me in South America is he got rejected five times. Wow. You know, he's, wow. you know, and again, it's, uh, and I don't know what that it's supposed to mean, but if he didn't give up and he persevered and he saw the value in it, uh, he eventually got there and, uh, to him, it filled his cup and he persevered, but it's those 
who may put in once or twice and not get in that uh, I, we just like to echo from the 8AM's workshop itself as well. This workshop, as much as it may help you, it's not a defining thing that will dictate overall success in your path in your career. I know we're very passionate of sharing these stories of of how it can benefit you, but you can still 100% create success for yourself in your career. If you do everything uh, like you've shared here today is building bonds, networks, and connections, lifting people up, because that, that's the biggest thing that uh, I think the theme that I've heard from the students that I'll interview uh, for this podcast is uh, when they hear from the portfolio editing sessions, they may they look for character that's not necessarily about the photos uh because the photos some will be great but anyone can take a single good snap the most important thing is what's the character like are they a good person are they arrogant are they cocky can they be uh moldable uh it's these are things that are going to be imprinted in these producers and these photo editors and these other photographers minds so when they leave here and eventually you'll cross paths at some point in one one way shape or form and that's how opportunities can present themselves that you didn't necessarily anticipate it's because you left a good positive impression that you're a good human being and you don't have to go to the workshop to do that you don't have to go to the workshop to be a good human being like you said to their peers around them they might be competitive in the standpoint of like for contests but when it comes to everything else in life in this field it's very hard and I, I'm very fortunate again to be able to do it in the military um, but I 100% respect every single one of my civilian peers that find a way to stay in the craft and treat it either as a full-time or part-time um, uh, career, uh, because I know it can't be easy. Uh, and I know uh, just by hearing the stories, but to overcome those um, and to have the successes on whatever scale inspire me, to, again, to do better for myself and also to do more to give back. Well, I'm I'm really glad that you said that. I just want to jump on and uh, share two myths that that I mm -hmm. love bust in the in the classes that I teach. The, the The first is you look at these folks that inspire you, right? And you see just all, all this success, like wow, they got this and that, and they were published here, and they got this and that award, right? But the truth is, the, success is not hitting a home run every single time you get a bat, right? That's not the way it works. It's not the way it works for any of us, right? That's not the way it works in baseball, and that's not the way it works in photography, right? And so if you get 10%, 20% is amazing of the things that you set out to do and award you set out to get or, you know, uh, a pitch for a story you want to work on or what a grant you apply to or even a project that you start, like if you have a 20% success rate, you're doing amazing, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And at the end of your career, you might have all these hits and home runs, but the reality is you hung in there long enough to be able to get that many, right? So it's about consistency. It's about mm -hmm. resilience. It's about just showing up and not taking it personal, you know? And um, again, I've had way more failures than than successes. And, and the real trick is just getting back up again. So that doesn't surprise me at all to hear um, about somebody applying over and over again. And the second myth that I want to bust is this notion that somehow once you get X, Y, or Z marker of success, whatever mm -hmm. it is, publish in this magazine, get this award, get into the Eddie's, Eddie Adams workshop, that somehow that's it, right? right <laughs> you're going yeah. to feel satisfied for the rest of your career and be, <laughs> it's going to result in, you know, all this stuff, it's, it's going to be easy street, right? And it doesn't work that way, right? The, those kind of pats on the back, they feel good, mm -hmm. um, but they don't last forever, you know? And for, for most of us, right? You, you, to, to fill your cup, you got to keep doing the work. You got to keep being involved, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about that end point, that pat on the back. It's really about the process. I mean, that's yeah. where 
that's what I enjoy. And the second is, yeah, you, you might be a hot thing <laughs> one minute, right? But that doesn't mm-hmm. guarantee that you're just going to be in that spot the next. So it's it's really about constantly pushing, constantly growing, being curious, reinventing yourself, you know, but 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 doing the work, showing up every day and 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 doing the work. 100%. I couldn't agree more. And again, not to uh, piggyback on you too much. And it's something that, uh, again, it's something I, I like sharing with my younger photographers that I have around me in the military is to success is going to be different for everyone. So when they like, again, when I have people like you on here, or Lisa Krantz, or John Cherry, and these people that have a very top level accomplishments, and success, um, it's good to aspire that as a goal, as a professional, but just because you don't achieve it, it doesn't mean that you're not successful. Achieving, again, something, whether it's small with the peers around you or the local community is just as important as compared to what you may have done or John Cherry or someone else within the community is success is success. It's not all, it's not all going to look the same across the floor. And again, it's, it's those that you, like when I was younger and I, I, maybe this is more of just therapy for myself as well is, uh, is like, it's always, it's always good to be hungry to want more. Um, but it, it's understanding everything that we've, we've shared here over the last couple of minutes. And it's knowing that, um, you're in a very fortunate position to where there's probably a young professional or a seasoned professional out there looking at your successes as their Mount Everest as well. And so it's again, and that's why, again, success, uh, is success. It's going to come in different shapes and forms. It's, it's being fortunate uh, and grateful for the ones and accomplishments that you've attained throughout your path. And yes, be hungry, continue to be hungry. And like you said, put in the work. And that's that's truly um, going to communicate to the community, um, like your, your character uh, and for what we could all emulate and wish to be as storytellers or communicators. Um, but don't be don't look back at your career and just because you don't have something that Michael has or John Cherry has or Cesar has, that you're not a success, that you're not winning at life. You truly are. Again, it just looks different than the next person. And that's what makes life so fun and so interesting. Um, it has to be internally mm-hmm. defined, right? You, yeah. You're not ever going to get there if you're if you're measuring yourself off of somebody else. And that, mm-hmm. that's why it's just so important to know what 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 your why is in the first place what what is it you really wanted to get out of this why why are you here right and that's the thing to measure it against are you giving your best effort you know is this something mm-hmm. that is meaningful for you and like you said that can manifest in n- numerous different ways there isn't one way that 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 looks like there are only innumerable ways that that looks like Perfect. I couldn't have said better, uh, but I do have one final question for you before I let you go. And I always enjoy and love asking this one because um, there's no wrong answer. There's no, uh, and, but it's always interesting to me that I have something to take away from all these conversations and reflect again upon myself. Um, but sir, do you have a favorite photo? Uh, again, it could be your own. It could be someone else's. Um, but yes, do you have a favorite photo? Oh my gosh. Um, that's such a hard question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Can I, can I subvert the question and give you one of my own and one uh, photo that's, that's not my own? Can 100%. Yep. And that's why I think this is beautiful because it's as simple as the question is, there's never just one exact answer. Okay. 
so I can see the photo that isn't my own right here. Um, so I, I think just one of the most incredible, powerful photos that has ever been taken is the Earthrise photo. And if folks don't know what that what what that is, that's a photograph that was taken um, during one of the earlier Apollo missions as the astronauts are coming around the backside of the moon and then they see the, the Earth rising up over the moon the way that we see the moon rise, only seeing the, the Earth rise and um, took a number of, um, uh, of photos of the Earth rise. And that photo is often pointed at as being one of the most powerful, important, impactful photos. Um, because it's the most incredible self-portrait we have ever had of ourselves. You know, we can, mm -hmm. we, we, we suddenly see ourselves um, as this thing that is both incredibly beautiful and precious. And we're all on this thing together. And also in this enormous, infinite space of darkness, right? So it's both, it's precious and it's finite and we're all on this thing together. But to me, what, what's really remarkable about that photo, I mean, and, and you know, a, a lot of times it's pointed towards a starting that, the environmental movement and radically changing the consciousness on the planet. But the truth is we, we already knew what that photo sh showed us, right? Like we have got the celestial mechanics going back hundreds, if not thousands of years that, that tell us that we are a ball <laughs> floating in a, 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 a vast, you know, space that's dark and cold uh, going around the sun. So we, we know this. And mm. what I love about that photo is not the work that the photo does itself, but it tells us something about the power of visual storytelling. They can make something that is so mathematically abstract and difficult to understand yeah. and just way out there and can suddenly make it concrete and real, right? And can mm -hmm. transmit this information that scientists, brilliant minds have, have, have figured out, but can transmit it, the, the, the spiritual realization of that new way of seeing ourselves into one image. And that image is, I think, to, to me, maybe just the most powerful one that, that really illustrates um, that power. And of course, again, really speaks to why I do what I do. So Earthrise uh, is, is I, I think, probably one of the greatest photos ever taken. Mine will come nowhere near to that. But um, I think the probably the favorite, my, my favorite photo that I've taken uh, Several years ago, I was working on that project in the Arctic that you and I were talking about. And um, while I was there, I was having conversations with folks about um, Ar Arctic uh, folks and, and, and life ways. And I end up hearing this story about this family that lives on the island of, of Svalbard, which is a, an uh, Arctic archipelago that's north of Norway. And Svalbard has the northernmost community on the planet. That's a, oh, wow. a year-round community. The capital of Svalbard is called Longyearbyen. Uh, and it's also the fastest warming place on the planet. So it's the most northern and fastest warming. Anyway, if you take the, the, the north road out of that town, there's a family that lives there, a family of four. They live on the very end of that road. So they're arguably the northernmost people on the planet. So they are truly, truly on the front lines of climate change and truly at the edge of the world, right? And so I took an image that was there, part of a story called the family at the end of the world. And to, to me, it's it's amazing as a documentarian because mm -hmm. you're going to a place that is changing so radically. I mean, it yeah, we, you know, the the, the temperatures are rising there faster than any any time in human history. That's wild. Yeah. And, and at no place faster than there, right? So as a mm -hmm. as a as a documentarian, you're capturing something that is truly unique, startling, terrifying, but also unique. Um, so I, I I like the image for that, for the moment in time that we're in right now, the conversation that we're in, but also because the photo, it's it's of this little girl from this family on this trampoline, and it connects these environmental issues to mm -hmm. human rights issues, right? For, for mm -hmm. me, climate change, we should care about it for a lot of different reasons, not least of which the impact on ecosystems, but it's gonna impact us and specifically future generations, Yeah. right? And 
regardless of your background, your political background, your economic background, where you come from, right? I, I think for the most part, we we care about our kids. We care about who is to come next. We yeah. believe mm-hmm. they have fundamental rights and we are robbing them if we don't act on this now, right? So mm-hmm. I love the photo that it makes that connection between, you know, human rights issues and environmental rights issues. And finally, finally, that to me in seeing a photo of, you know, this child and and and, and hearing the story of her family, which is adapting to climate change and looking at solutions, there's hope there, right? It's not just all about loss and impact. You do see this environment behind her that's that's, you know, much browner than it should be that time of year the snow is disappearing but you also see this little girl and you hear the story of her and her family and in that there's hope right and that's the kind of stories that i want to work on that really move us beyond just the gloom and doom and say okay hey look we're up we're we're up against a lot here um but but we've got options and there's things that we can do and every moment that we act on those now we are reducing the impact um, on those that are yet to come and to me that, I mean, that's just one of the most essential markers of ethical behavior, right? Is we mm-hmm. we 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 give the future generations every shot that we had and more. So I, I hope in some small way my work can, you know, live up to that bar, live up to uh, contributing to the conversation of how we do that, how we make that transition. We 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 don't get to know, but I hope it aims well, right? I hope it aims towards that end. Um, no, thank you. That was beautiful. Um, those are remarkable images and definitely for uh, that shot for Earth, I'm going to be looking at in a different way now, thanks to you. And I appreciate that. Um, but other than that, uh, I'll leave it here. And I just want to thank you, uh, Michael, for your time today. Um, it was a blast. Truly learned a lot. And I know the rest of the community is going to enjoy this as well. So uh, again, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And thanks for everything that you're doing with Eddie Adams, you guys. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Long Roll Podcast. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, it would mean the world to us. If you haven't already, go ahead and click subscribe. Share with a friend and family and let them know that they can find this on any platform that they prefer. Again, thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back here next episode.